Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Good morning. Thank you for being here with us today. It's good to see everyone. We are in our third week of this beginning piece of James. And we're working through looking how James talks to us about trials and the ways that we can be encouraged in our souls as we go through these trials. Uh, someone in just the last couple of weeks came up to me and said, hey, do you know this story about trial? And I was like, oh, I, that's a great story. It's an amazing story of faith in the midst of trial. So I want to make sure you all knew it as well. Um, there's this man, his name is Horatio Spafford, and he was born almost 200 years ago in 1828 in New York. Uh, he, he grew up, was educated, and ended up becoming a very uh, prestigious partner at a law firm in Chicago. Uh, in 1861, he married his, his wife, Anna, who was from Norway, and they both were devout Christians. Uh, in fact, he became an elder at the Presbyterian church that he was a part of. Uh, they liked to support Christian causes. They were good friends and supporters of Dwight L. Moody, who at the time was one of the most prominent American evangelists who was going around, especially on the East Coast, even to Europe and England, sharing with people the gospel of Jesus Christ, encouraging them, begging them to come to him and to know him more. Um, the, the Staffords, they, the Spaffords, they, they had four children uh, immediately after they were married, and life was going pretty good. In 1871, in the spring, he went and invested most all the money that he had into properties in the north of Chicago. And if you know your history, in the fall of 1871 is when the Great Fire of Chicago occurred. Wiped out almost the entire city, burned to the ground, everything gone. And for most of us, if we were to think about a trial in our life, losing all your possessions, all your material resources, it might be one of the, the hardest trials you could go through. How do you rebuild? How do you start over and continue to move ahead? And yet for Spafford, this really wasn't the hardest one that he was going to face. In fact, it was only two years later in 1873, him and his wife wanted to continue to support Dwight L. Moody in his evangelism. And so they planned to go to England with him and and just be there to support him financially, encourage him. And so they they bought tickets on on a ship. It was going to take two weeks to cross the Atlantic. Um, And in the last minute, uh, Horatio found out that he had to stay in Chicago to deal with some issues with those properties that had burned down and how were they going to rebuild them, what was going to go on. So he planned to send his wife ahead along with their four children who at that point were 12, 7, 4, and 18 months. And he would catch up with them several weeks later. And so on November 15th, 1873, his wife and his daughters sailed off and it was on their seventh night at sea, halfway through the distance in the Atlantic, that they actually hit another ship. And within 12 minutes, the ship sunk. Of the 313 passengers, 226 died. And of the Spafford family, only Anna was found floating, unconscious, on a piece of wood, pulled on to the rescue ship. Nine days later, when that ship finally got them to England, Anna sent a communication, a telegram back to her husband, and this is all she said. She said, saved alone, what shall I do? Uh, there was an, another survivor pulled onto the ship that night who was also a pastor. His name is Nathaniel Weiss, and he, he has stories about the different things that he talked about with different people. And he says that when he talked with Anna, what Anna said to him was, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. 
And upon receiving the telegram, obviously Horatio was just crushed. It was almost more than he could bear. So he quickly jumped on a ship, hurried to meet with his wife in England. And as they were in the middle of the ocean, the the captain of the ship called him up and said to him, we're passing by the spot where the ship went down. I just want you to know. And Horatio wrote to his sister-in-law later and said, on Thursday, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, the water's three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, folded the dear lambs. It was on that journey, while he was in the middle of the ocean, not several weeks after all four of his daughters had died, that Horatio Spafford wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, we, we sang that song last week. We're going to sing it again this week after the sermon. But look at me with these, this amazing faith that he was able to hold on to in the midst of that moment. This is what he says. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What sweet faith that he had. Undoubtedly, in the middle of the ocean, sorrow must have been rolling over him like those sea bills, having lost his daughters. And yet, in looking to the Lord, in looking to Christ Jesus, he found peace, he says, assurance, bliss, and even hopeful expectation at what God was going to do. He treasured that God had saved him in his sins, had saved his children and his family in their sins, and that he had saved them through Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross for their souls. And he worshiped that his sin was nailed to that cross, and that one day, just like us, he would see heavens rolled back like a scroll and come face to face with his Lord and God. That's exactly the type of faith that James is encouraging us towards. The exact kind of faith that James is praying that God would work in us as we read through this letter. That's what he wanted the Jewish Christians he was writing to to see. And we've said this several times throughout this piece of James, that we will have trials. And that our trials are there, and part of the process is meant to test our faith, to refine it, to purify it, to make it more wholly devoted only to God. And in doing so, that God might create steadfastness in us, the ability to walk out that faith over the long haul in trusting and knowing him and that in one day, that steadfastness, little by little here, but in one day when the Lord takes us to be with him, we might see that we are made more perfect and complete in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And last week, we talked about how part of that being perfect and complete has different ideas for James. And first and foremost, James sees within being perfect and complete, having the wisdom of God. We talked about last week how the wisdom that we want is to not ask how to get out of the trial, but to ask what to get out of the trials. Not how to get out of it, but what to get out of it. And that what God wants most from us during the trial is to seek wisdom. His wisdom. 
In fact, we saw that wisdom is knowing God himself. It's found when we look singularly to God, not vacillating between looking at him and our own desires and the worldly desires that are out there. We find that true, true, true wisdom is finding a person, a relationship, a someone, not a something to know. We get re- wisdom the more we l- relate to God. And we find that we see that most completely in the person of Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of the wisdom of God. The second last week, James was showing us that in wisdom is finding our ultimate value in Jesus. For the poor, that means that they can rejoice in their exaltation, that even though they look like they have nothing to give this world, that in Jesus Christ, they are the blessed sons and daughters of the Most High God. They are royal priests in his kingdom. And he has loved them greatly. And for the rich, it almost looks like humiliation to realize that all the riches you have can never buy what you really need, which is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And lastly, part of being perfect and complete is to keep our gaze looking forward, to look to that end day, that that day where we will receive a crown of life as God takes us through the trials of this world. Uh, We are to look to that promised reality where we might walk right with God in relationship again in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem where we will be forever in relationship with God in Jesus Christ. What what James is encouraging us towards is the same things that Horatio Spafford is worshiping about God. That knowing Jesus, knowing that our sins have been dealt with through the blood and the cross of Christ, knowing that our relationship with God is secure, that we will see him fully one day in the future. And as Horatio Spafford said, we will be able to say, it is well with my soul. Even in our times of trial and our times of difficulties. The promises that James is bringing us back to again and again are so sweet so precious, and they're meant to be so encouraging to us in the life that we walk out right now. You know, up to this point, James has been encouraging us not to miss the positives, not to miss the good things that we can see in the midst of trials, the ways that we can see God and all the ways that he's working, the ways that he's providing for us. And today, as we kind of come into this last piece of this first section on trials, we're going to see how James wants us not to make a a wrong turn, not, not to mistakenly begin to think something improper about God or even the trials that we're going through. Namely, he doesn't want us to think that God is tempting us. Look at what James says here in James 1.13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One of the things we we talked about when we first started James was the reality that this word for test and trial and temptation, they're, they're the same words in Greek. And so we have to look at the context to see what they're saying, what they mean. When James says this here, what he's literally saying in this section is, let no one say when he is tested by God, I'm being tested by God. Right? He wants to use a play on words here so that you'll remember it, that his readers would have remembered something special here. What he wants you to hear is, let no one say when he is tested by God, I'm being tempted by God. Right? Our English language is very helpful here. We all know that there's a difference between being tested and being tempted. Right? When we go to Scripture, we see all over that God tests people. We see in Genesis 22.1 that God tested Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice, be willing to sacrifice his long-awaited and beloved son, Isaac. 
And we see in Judges 2.22 that God left a test for Israel by keeping pagan nations all around them once they moved into the land to see if their heart would remain wholly devoted to him. And we see in 2 Chronicles 31.32 that God even tested King Hezekiah to see if his heart would remain devoted to him. God does test people, and the test really isn't the problem. And we all know that. Everyone here has some sort of expertise. It may be something you just learned along the way. It may be something that you do better in your family than everyone else. Maybe something you went to college for or graduate school. It can be as simple as the fact that you might be the one everyone in the house asks, where's the can opener in which drawer and where does it go back to? Or it may be something that you've practiced many years to know how to cross-clamp an aorta that's been dissected. If I was to give you a test in your area of expertise, you would actually like it because you'd get 100, right? And who doesn't like that? Just like a second grader, who doesn't want to see those zeros with the little eyes and the smiley face in it and the little scratch and sniff sticker next to it that says, great job. We like those kind of tests where we can say we succeeded. We understood what to do. I knew how to be that way. What we don't like are the tests that show that we're not quite properly equipped, that we haven't maybe been studying or engaging life in the way that we should have, or in fact, maybe that we just don't like to engage what's going on in the test. You know, part of doing my job well this morning in bringing the word of God to you is that I had to go run five miles after each service. I might not enjoy that test of my abilities. I haven't been training for that. It would have been hard during the middle of the sermons. It would have been even worse now after this, this service to have to go out and do that. Now, that would that's, that'd be a hard trial for me. You know, when God doesn't test us, he doesn't try us as though he doesn't know where we're at. God knows us. He knows everything about it. The problem is that we don't, right? I, you may not be as prideful as me, but I, I tend to think when a test comes along or before the test actually comes along, and I, I would do pretty good. I, I wouldn't have any problems with it. And, and even when I tend to be sort of self-doubting, I'm still usually not thinking about how poorly I might engage with what is put in front of me, the problems of my heart and the ways that that might work out. One of the things that happens then when we are in that kind of a test is we have a temptation to say that God is tempting us. It's God's fault. Now, you may be sitting here this morning going, I've never said that. I've never, I've never would even think that. I would never want to say that God is the reason. God is the problem of what's going on. But I know I have, and I think you might have too. See, in fact, we tend to say things like this when we're in difficult situations. We say things like, if I only had a more understanding wife, or a more understanding husband, I wouldn't get so angry. If my children were just a little more compliant, I started out the day happy, but then their discontentment just ruined it for me. If my parents just understood my situation better, then it would be easier to obey them. If my neighbors weren't so hard to get along with, that loud music at 3 a.m., that really brings out the worst in me. If my elders were more communicative, I could trust them more and submit to them. If... If, if. In fact, when, when we start engaging with our trials and we want to look for the locus of the problem outside of ourselves, we say that if, I think, is these things. Isn't that really just the same as us saying, God, if you'd given me a better spouse, if you'd given me a better boss, if you'd given me better children, better parents, better neighbors, better pastors and elders, then, Lord, then I could have succeeded at the task that was set before me. Then I could have passed the test. That's how we say that it's really God's fault when we fail, that it has nothing to do with what's going on inside of us, but it's everything outside of us, that he's the one who brought about the life that we're living in. And so it's his fault. 
he tempted us. And what James is saying here is God cannot do that. God can only bring good things to us. It would not be consistent with the character of God and his goodness, in his integrity, in his singularity to bring anything other than that goodness. It would violate everything that we read about him in Scripture. And that's where James then goes next. He, he starts with, God can't be the one doing that, but, or really what he says here is, but rather, is what he says. He says, let no one say when he is tested, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but, but rather, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we walk around all the time with desires, some good, some neutral, some evil. And what James is trying to point us towards here are those evil desires, those sinful desires. He's trying to make us think about it like Peter would say in 1 Peter Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, the desires, same word, of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Right? The desires that come from our fleshly nature, not our godly nature. Or as John says it in 1 John 2, he says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. That's, those are the desires we don't want. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These sinful desires are desires of our flesh. They're, they're not part of what God has given us in grace through his Holy Spirit and the awakening of our hearts. It's what's still there and dwelling us until that day that God changes it in an instant and gives us a new body, a new reality. You know, the, the, when they come to mind, they're, they're there and they rouse our affections. And James says that they lure, that they entice us. The imagery is very vivid there. It comes from the imagery of fishing, right? Casting a lure out into a lake or into a stream, beginning to pull it back, and some fish moving by sees it, desires it, snatches it, only to be reeled into its death. In fact, most scholars say that this phrase seems to become sort of a colloquialism, a common saying in James's day, and he's reminding these Jewish Christians of it. It's, we have something really similar. We say, I took the bait. Right? I, we, no one's talking about fishing when you say, I took the bait. You mean that something was put before you and you actually took it and you didn't really realize where things were going to go after that. And that's what James is wanting us to realize, that we have desires that can hook us, that can catch us, that can pull us away in places we may not want to go. And yet, even here, James makes a distinction. It's not the happenstance of temptation that's the problem. The temptation itself, the idea, the thought, the momentary realization that there's a fleshly way I could approach this versus the godly way is not the issue itself. What James says here is that the problem is when temptation gets pregnant, as it were, in his, in his analogy. You know, at some point, we so love our desire that we embrace it and it conceives And something is birthed out of that. And James says that is sin. He seems to be picturing in his mind an Old Testament picture that that we get in Proverbs of of sinful desires, of folly as being this prostitute, this woman that is enticing people. Look what it says in Proverbs. It says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there 
and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You know, throughout Proverbs, folly is, is given as the opposite of wisdom. And here James says folly is when we pursue our sinful desires. The problem is not that people hear her call. In fact, it says she calls to all. Everyone's hearing her as they pass along the way. The problem is when we go into her. When we embrace the desire, that's when it moves from just temptation to sin. And as James says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or as Proverbs says here, the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, or hell. Interestingly, when we look at Scripture, we see that Jesus himself was tempted, yet he still remained perfect in all of his ways. And we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling with his flesh that doesn't want to go to the cross. He's he's tried by that that difficulty and and what the reality that's going to look like. And yet we see him praying to God and say this in Luke 22. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we're told throughout Scripture that because Jesus was tempted, because he understands that reality, he wants to help us in our temptation. Hebrews 2 says it this way. says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted or tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted or tested. He knows what it's like. He's been there, and he overcame it. It's the same concept that James is sharing. And it's not just that Jesus is going to help us in our tests and trials. In fact, Paul says God is going to do something even more in the midst of it. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And this is incredibly gracious of God but also incredibly indicting about our brokenness. You know, God will never tempt us in our trials. And in every trial, even though they carry the risk of of sin, of, of doing something wrong, that comes from our own desires, never from God. And God promises here in 1 Corinthians 10 that he won't put us in a situation where you actually couldn't make it through, where you actually couldn't stand up underneath it, where you couldn't endure and escape from it. The image that came to mind for me when I thought about this, I don't know how many of you have seen these videos now where parents put their kids on a table with some candy in front of them and set their camera up to watch them. And they tell them, hey, I'm going to leave the room. And if you, if you wait to eat the candies, I'll give you more when I come back. And it's like nine times out of 10, the kids, as soon as the parents are out the door, are just like stuffing candies in their face, right? I mean, this is today's Facebook TikTok version of a 1970s trial done by Stanford called the Marshmallow Test. Same idea. Set out marshmallows in front of kids. They wanted to learn and understand why were some kids able to do this and some weren't. Now, some of them aren't surprising. Some of them are like, hey, the older the kids were, the better they did. The more educated they were. They found out some interesting things that kids who came from more affluent families actually had a better ability to trust that maybe there would be good things in the future and to pass up on the candies in front of them that day. What God is saying is that he's never going to make us like one of those kids who's like a two-year-old child with with a whole pile of skills in front of him and no capacity to say no to stuffing those in their face, right? That's never going to be the reality for us. God promises that he will not ever tempt us himself, though he allows tests and trials. And he promises that he will not allow the temptation to be one that we can't in our desire and our turning to the Lord to trust in him singularly, that we can't walk out from underneath and escape. Again, that's incredibly gracious, but super indicting to just how broken we are. That in every test that we fail, it's because of our desires that we want to turn to, that we want to grasp onto and love. But that's where the good news comes in. 
And that's the good news, as Paul would say in Romans 5, 8, that God knew you in that brokenness. It was in that brokenness that he was willing to come and save you. That he's willing to die on the cross for you, for your sins, knowing that would be your state and knowing you were going to continue to walk through trials that were going to test you that way. And that you would at times, maybe most of the time, grab onto those desires and be hauled away into sin. It's exactly what James wants us to, to focus on. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tests, focusing on our own personal desires, focusing on what we want most is not really the answer. We should be looking to the very goodness of God. And James makes a shift here again that might look a little bit ADD in one sense, right? He immediately just starts talking about something totally different. But again, he's using these expressions about God to draw us back to the deepest truth he wants us to see here, which is that God ultimately is good. And this section acts as a very appropriate conclusion to this section on trials. Again, pointing to the singularness of God, pointing to his integrity, to his undivided desire to bring only goodness in our lives. Look what James says next. James says this. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And James gives us two examples of the goodness of God here. Uh, the first one, he states that every good and perfect gift is from God. The language here is actually sort of a rhyme. It's a poem. It's put together in a very particular way, which makes most people think that James is kind of quoting a common saying from the early church. He, he's looking at these Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, and he's saying, hey, guys, remember the little saying, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. He's wanting to remind them that God is good, and that's the only thing that he gives to us. It's it's interesting that that reality, that every good thing comes from God, is one of our best touch points with a watching world that needs to know him. You know, so often people who don't yet believe in Jesus want to act like the biggest thing they can bring to a Christian is how do you deal with evil? When in reality, the biggest thing we should be talking about is how do they have any answer for why there's any good in this world? Why there's anything good that they see? Why anyone wakes up in the morning and feels the sun on their face and enjoys it? Why anyone knows what it's like to have a nice, kind word said to them or embrace that helps them understand love. Why anyone has days and experiences where we're with friends playing games, laughing and enjoying one another. All these point to a good God who's pouring out his goodness on a world, saved people and unsaved, all the same. It's a beautiful reminder for all of us that God is very real, that he is there and he's good. And it leads us very naturally to the reality that a good God would provide a way back to him. And he did that in Jesus Christ on the cross. And James pairs this idea with this statement of the father of lights. It's a, it's a cosmological picture. And he also uses another statement that is meant to be from the same area, that God has no variation or shadow due to change. He's trying to remind us that here's God who's created all things that we will ever see in creation. But unlike the sun that seems to rise and then sets and disappears, unlike the moon that seems to have different moments where it's shaded different amounts in its phases, unlike the stars that seem to move in the sky depending on the seasons, that is not God. He will never vary. He will never change. He will always be there for you in goodness. And then James turns and he goes to his ultimate example. His ultimate example of God's goodness is you and me. 
Can you really argue with that? Why should God have picked you? Why should God have picked me? There has to be some kind of goodness, some kind of love that I am barely able to understand and comprehend that it would choose me, think that it could do anything with this wreck, this broken person, that I might be able to be seen as acceptable before the Lord. James says that God does it through the word of truth, which everywhere else in scripture is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus has died for you and loves you. That's how God is showing us most clearly his goodness. Uh, The Jewish Christians that James was writing to indeed were able to be first fruits, and so are we as we receive the grace of Jesus and then pass it on to another waiting generation, more people who need to know about the wonderful news of Jesus and how they can be back in relationship to God in love through his spirit in the gospel. It's this section that, that helps us begin to transition us to this next section that Brian Rome, one of our partners, is going to introduce next week. You know, if we are recipients of God's perfect gift of love and goodness and life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we should be an example in our conduct and actions in obedience to God's word. We will have trials. Trials will test and refine our faith. Strength and faith will help us to walk steadfastly throughout this life that we might make it to the end and that ultimately we might be found perfect and complete in Jesus. And we need God's wisdom through these trials. We need more of him that we might see him more clearly in Jesus. And we need to gaze upon him singularly to receive his singular goodness for us. The temptations that we face in the trials come from our own desires that we get lured and enticed by and grabbed onto. And what we should focus on instead is this God who will never tempt us, but will only provide us with goodness. And what an incredible section. I mean, this whole area is just steeped with deep theological truths about God and his love for us. How trials can grow us to know him more and how he will continue to give us only goodness through any difficulty. You know, what we may have said at the very beginning, as Luther said, look like an epistle of straw or in our analogy, a house of Legos, is turning out to be quite the the letter packed with colossal kingdom building cornerstones of truth that we should be basing our entire life on. You know, as we leave this section on trials, I want to give you an encouragement that comes from one of the images that we see in this section. And we saw early on this idea of waves. It's a metaphor that we continue to use even in our day and age, that difficulties are like waves pushing us around, at times feeling like we're drowning. It's overwhelming to us. We're going places we do not want to go. When we think about that, that analogy in Scripture, one of the first places most people go is to Jesus walking across the water. Right? We see in places like Mark 6 and Matthew 14, as Jesus, out of nowhere, just comes trucking across the waves of the Sea of Galilee while the disciples are out there in a boat trying to get to the other side. And he even beckons to Peter to come out on one of the stories, right? Why? Why out of nowhere is all of a sudden Jesus walking across the water in these waves? And I think a good Jew like James would have said, oh, go back with me to the Old Testament. Go back with me to Job for a minute. Right? When we go to Job, we see a man who's lost everything. All of his children, 
all of his property and possessions, even his health. He's laying there in ashes, trying to honor the Lord who gives and takes away at his own pleasure. And yet at some point, he dares to challenge God and say, I don't get what I did wrong. And at that point, God launches into an epic, multi-chapter, mic drop of an answer to Job, where he continues to say time after time all the things that Job doesn't know, all the things he can't even fathom, all the ways that God is in control, and Job dared to ask him what's going on. And in that statement, here's what God says about himself. He says that he is the God who alone stretched out the heavens and walked the waves of the sea. That's one of God's definitions of himself. He is the God who can walk the waves of the sea. They do not stop him. They do not buffet him. They do not impede his walk and his ways and where he wants to go. He is the God who walks on the waves. He is the God of Job. When Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee, this isn't just to show a cool little miracle as though he's sort of loved by God and different than everyone else. That's a claim to Godhood. He is saying, I am the very God man. I am the God who walks on water. And if those waters of life are so often our trials that move us back and forth, he is the God that is beckoning you and me to look to him. The God who is not phased at all by the difficulties that come because of sin in this world. He was not challenged by them to send his son who would walk into the midst of them and die on a cross for us. Can you look today in the midst of the trials of your life and trust that God? The God who can walk on the waves. The God who has only good for you. The God who allows trials and tests that your faith might be refined and that you might find yourself more beloved in Jesus Christ. Can you hold on to those beautiful truths from James? Can you say today, along with Horatio Spafford, it is well. It is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? Father God, there are so many ways in which you are good that we, we have even just barely scratched the surface in a discussion like this this morning. God, you are the God who, who knows where snow is stored. You are the God who knows every bird of the air. You know the creatures of the deep. Lord God, you know every hair on our head. And God, you know the hearts of every person in this world. Lord God, you are the God who is so powerful that you are the one who is able to take a hardened heart, deaf ears, blind eyes like mine, like my brothers and sisters, and to begin to soften the heart, begin to open the ears, open the eyes, that we might see and behold you as beautiful, as only good for us, and to put our faith in you through Jesus Christ alone. Lord God, would you bring us back to that goodness today? Even in the midst of trials, Lord God, would we see and savor the goodness that you have brought to us, and especially that goodness in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.